This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Welcome to the Witching Hour at the Edinburgh Festival and to an evening with one of the great rock and roll legends of the day, Julian Cope. My name is Lee Brackstone. I'm the publisher and creative director of Faber Social, which is a publishing imprint dedicated to the best and most innovative rock and roll writing. It is also my privilege to have edited two books by Julian, the most recent of which is this, 131, a time-traveling Gnostic hooligan road novel. In a minute, I will be introducing Mr. Cope, a man who, as I'm, sure, as I'm sure you know, rarely makes public appearances of this sort. As he has said himself, I'm going to become the best-remembered artist of my generation by staying away from the party as often as possible. That way, people will remember me not because I was great, but because I didn't cause them any later embarrassment. <laughs> Before I do that, I want to tell you a little story, some background as to how this whole trip came about. In 2007, I made contact with Julian Cope, who was a bit of a hero of mine, by email to see if he might want to write for our music journal at Faber Loops. Later that week, I picked up the phone, and it was Julian. The Loops idea didn't really attract him, and typically, he blindsided me by saying, you're the fiction guy at Faber, yep? Well, I'm writing a novel. A week or so later, I was sat in Julian's kitchen in Wiltshire, eating a vegetarian ham sandwich. Over the course of three hours, I witnessed a soulless performance of what was, th what was in the process of becoming 131. The novel was literally enacted before me, and the story went something like this. Sardinia, 2006. Burnt out, drugged up rock star, rock section, veteran, of legendary rave band Deglo Maradona has returned to the island to discover what has happened to his fellow ravers and hooligans who were kidnapped and taken hostage in a fascist cheese factory in Italia 90. The World Cup of Gaza's Tears and New Order's World in Motion. In Sardinia, rock travels down the 131, the island's only significant highway. Along the way, meeting old adversaries like Judge Barry Herzog, the C.S. Lewis espousing quasi-fascist veteran Dutch hooligan of slag van blowdriver legend. <laughs> but this, as you might expect from Julian Cope, was not just a novel. It was a whole world realized through the prism of a novel. To describe the architecture of this novel with its many fictional but real bands like Spackhouse Totu, Nurse with Mound, Make Fuck, Deglo Maradona and the Low Countries, and its many philosophical tributaries on a journey towards compassionate redemption would be far too 19th century. You could file 131 by Julian Cope next to Jonathan Coe and Robert Coover, but this would only tell you half the story of the relationship between form, content, and imaginative license as illustrated in these pages. Here, quite simply, was a novel alongside which the bulk of contemporary fiction would wither and die. Seven years on from that meeting, 
here we are publishing a novel which Bobby Gillespie describes as a total skullfuck of a book. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for a man who has rewritten prehistory and pop music, and now the novel, the archdrude himself, Mr. Julian Cope. Unless I'm mistaken, Julian, you're going to open the evening by doing a short reading from the novel. I am. Great. Don't forget to use the mic. Hello. <laughs> Before I say anything, let me just say, could I have a mic stand? Is there a mic stand ha handy? Okay, what I'm going to do is, I wanted this microphone because I'm just so unused to doing literary festivals and I really needed a uh, direct um, interface with a microphone. J Julian, I could, yeah, I, could, I can hold the mic. You know, like, because I'm, it's very hard for me not to be doing this as I read. <laughs> so when you see me reading, imagine that there's a huge part of me is doing this. <laughs> Strafing the audience. With stairs. Do you want me to hold the book for you, Julian? I think that I'll be able to make... I'll be able to do it without making too much of a show of myself. Maybe take one of the gauntlets off. <laughs> I'm going to compromise and take the gauntlets <laughs> off. Jesus, man, you've sold out. <laughs> I'm old enough to do that. <laughs> the other thing I like to say is, I'm delighted to be here. And it's hard to behave particularly you know, decently um, now that I've become a, a writer, mainly, because I just stay indoors and, you know, sort of uh, look at the horizon and do that. So just seeing a huge group of people is very exciting to me. <laughs> I'm just going to take you in for a moment. Uh, I uh, agreed with my wife and said that I wouldn't wear um, prescription shades because then I'd be able to see your faces and that would excite me more. <laughs> As it is, you're just a blur of possibilities. So Julian's reading the very first chapter of the book. Some of the reviews have described the book as being the hero's a bit picaresque. Fair enough, but only at the beginning. This is a book about enlightenment, trans transcendence. It runs the full gamut of emotions from minus A to Z plus. It's, it's a 25-8 novel. <laughs> it starts badly, but at least it goes downhill to such a degree that then it could be a springboard for something good. <laughs> He's lying. 
<laughs> this ain't the summer of love, chapter one. I looked up from the book I wasn't reading and glanced around at the other passengers, all the while raising my butt cheeks as imperceptibly as possible so as to let off an unprovenanced SPD. My biliousness at 35,000 feet got the best of me, better of me, however, and rather than the intended farton, instead a flabby brown thick shake slurred into my leather kecks. This was too much even for me. My heart beat so fast Al Jorgensen programmed it, and my stomach's long congealed smorgasbord of illegal, psychiatric, and over-the-counter drugs forced me upright, lurching upright, hesitating and lurching upright, then escorted me with great haste to the lavatories at the back of the plane. One woman waited in front of me. All right? I rested against her back and lolled my head into her neck. She let me go in first. <laughs> I collapsed onto the molded seat thing and shat long and hard. Hey! Once it... <laughs> Dangerous. <laughs> I collapsed onto the molded seat thing and shat long and hard, once again into my leather kecks. <laughs> then my phone rang, probably Mick, and I fell asleep. When I woke up, my phone was ringing again and people were pounding on the door and shouting. I soon realized they couldn't get in, however hard they beat. So I slid down onto my haunches in that tiny gap between the toilet seat and the door and fell asleep again. My blood circulation terminated at the knees, my head pulsing like a cranium-sized bellend, unable to orgasm. The next time I woke up was when rave orange, tank-suited Sardinian airport engineers prized the door off the lavatory and I fell forward into a brief consciousness as I smacked against the wall opposite. My phone rang and I rose out of my body and stared down judgmentally at my bleeding, sticky face below. A stewardess screamed, but nobody caught me, or even dared approach my stinking protocorps. Instead, the engineers cordoned off the area and let me come to gradually in my own brown trousers round the ankles, humiliation. As embarrassed African ladies hoovered the aisles and disposed of jet-set rubbish, my phone rang again, Mick for certain, Eventually, I staggered, shuffled, crawled, seeped, inched back into the Eurobog's restricted square feet and did my best to clean myself up. Thank you. So, Julian, the, the novel opens with a scene of, of absolute degradation and humiliation. What, what drew you to the novel form in, um, in the first place? This is very important to everybody that I say this. I only write essential stories. Oh, Cope only writes essential stories, yes. I wrote the Krautrock sampler because we needed to get a context on Germany and the war. I wrote the Jap Rock sampler because we needed to get an angle on why the Japanese had managed to keep, keep themselves together after such a dreadful uh, defeat in World War II. Everything is a story that hasn't been told before. The shock that registered through me was when I suddenly realized I was going to have to write a novel to tell the stories that 
everybody really needed to hear that couldn't be told in a, in a non-fiction book. And was that harder than writing non-fiction? I don't think it was harder than writing non-fiction. I think it was an absolute trip <laughs> to write it. Because you've said one of the things you've said is that you live in a visionary state. Yeah. So does, do you think that means that you're naturally disposed towards making things up, as in writing a novel? When I started in rock and roll, it never occurred to me that I could keep anything going beyond you know, making a few records for a while. I didn't, have, uh, uh, I didn't have some, what they would call an end game. I just wanted to get my foot in the door and bully my way in and hoodwink people into thinking I was good. As soon as I realized I could do that and people actually liked it, it made me realize that everything I should do should be essential or it just becomes a bourgeois dry wank. <laughs> Nothing, that's the only way to describe it. There are so many pieces of art that shouldn't exist. Um, Have you got any examples? Uh, <laughs> most modern poetry. Since? Um, what's that Simon Armitage poem about the... the, um, about the um, Kid? No. Uh, Sophie, who, uh, who got murdered. Is that Black Roses? Yeah. I find that awful. You could, Julian, you can't disfavor poets on stage. Yes, yeah, that's the thing I can. I think it's really important because I don't... I don't have colleagues. That's all I wanted to say. I think it's really important in a democracy like this. We've worked so hard to get to where we are. We've got to monitor ourselves. We've got to be self-policing. We've got to be acutely self-policing. Gurdjieff, the Armenian mystic, said the problem with most modern art is that it satisfies the neuroses of the artist himself and leaves the viewer mystified. I've been allowed to grow in a peculiar way, to have a credibility, and yet I can, I get paid to make far out books, to scream my head off on stage, and to just, it's basically just to remind us that we don't live in a straight society. If it was really a straight society, I'd be in a rubber room but people give me dosh rather than put me in the rubber room. So there's a latitude, there's an area for... And within that, that's where I work, telling stories that have not been told before. That's the essential thing. And this story is a particularly important one to you, isn't it? It's a very important story. It takes place in Sardinia for a very specific reason. Because in Italian 90, the Italian authorities to their horror, discovered that Holland and Ireland and England were all in the same group. And Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> but they weren't going to cause problems. No. So the Italians are acutely suspicious of Sardinia. 
So being fearful that the English fans are the worst people in the world, the Dutch fans are the worst people in the world, they put that group on Sardinia so that it wouldn't offend mainland Italians. So this is true? This is true. Yeah. Certain things in the, in the book, are the, they're historically essential and they're politically essential um, points. And that's where I jumped from, where I started. And that's where I, my jump-off point. And so we have, an hero, we have a hero and a villain, villain in the book. Rock Section is essentially the hero. And Judge Barry Herzog, who is um, in charge of the Dutch hooligans, is the villain. Can you talk a bit about him and what he represents in the book? Um, about Herzog? Herzog, yeah. Herzog is, again, we're talking about borders. The baddie in this book is a Dutch hooligan. He claims to be the first indie hooligan. He, in, in the book, he, he says, he says for, uh, for, for everyday football violence, I go to the local club, Be Quick, from Dockham. Be Quick is the name of the team. But for international violence, I graduate to Groningen. And the whole point is, is that he is, he is absolutely obsessed with what he has been handed in his, and, and his family and his friends have been handed by being from the Netherlands. He, is, he feels as though he's dissed every day. He's from the very North Netherlands, which is a place called Drenthe. And he freaks out whenever he sees the international Dutch team. And everybody's calling them Holland. It's like, well, Holland is just a part of the Netherlands. Imagine... You Scots having to see a team being referred to as England when it was a British team. It would niggle at you, it would burn at you. Just, You'd be like, what? Just a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but more than that, it would make you feel as though you were in an enclave. What the hell? Why are you not, are you not noticing this? There's, there's Welsh people playing, there's Scots people playing. What are you doing calling it England? That's what people in the Netherlands have to suffer all the time. That's what I pick at. It's a sore. It's a sore that goes, an open wound that goes throughout Europe. People who are being misrepresented. People who don't want to be in Spain, they want to be <coughs> Catalan. I'm not Spanish, I'm Catalonian, I'm proud of that. That's what the book's about. It's about these I traveled throughout Europe when I was doing a book on ancient Europe, and I discovered other people's worldviews. Initially, I only went into Europe to see how Britain looked from a European perspective. But as I got into Europe, I realized that people had entirely different worldviews, sometimes maybe 100 miles apart. And it made me realize that these are the issues and that's why this book is essential, because it picks at those sores. It questions things like the Hillsborough disaster on that political level. Why did Margaret Thatcher vilify not just Liverpool, but Liverpool people? Why did she vilify them to the point where Liverpool started to seem, at that point in the 80s, like it was some kind of enclave over here. I mean, we don't want to talk about it, but if we are going to talk about it, let's be nasty. Let's be ungenerous. 
There are enclaves all over Europe. Well, I know there are enclaves all over the world because I've seen them that are bullied and prodded and mistreated. And that's what 131's about. It's that, that questionable element. But it's a very complex beast, the novel. But there, there, principally, there are, there are three time periods in which it's set. There's 2006, the present day, if you like. There's 1990. But then there's a further narrative which is set in 10,000 BC. And, and rock section keeps disappearing through ancient Sardinian doorways back to 10,000 BC into rural Derbyshire when he, <laughs> he finds himself a, um, the prince of Ashop feeding on a Fedra which was, of course, the drug that Maradona was taking in 1990. Um, what is the significance of that narrative? I mean, I think for, hope, hoping, I'm hoping people have either read the book or will buy the book and read it, and it is the most magnificent thing, but what is, what is the significance of that part of the book, that element, that element of the narrative for you? When the main character goes back 10,000 years, we discover, he's quite happy with it, but we discover that the world really didn't change a lot. That the people who still got it hold on to it and hide it and covet it. And like Mario Puzo says in The Godfather, the rich laugh at money in order that the poor do not yearn for it. When it's the same 10,000 years ago, they're still hoodwinking on a massive scale. But also, it's very much the same in as much as he is a, he's the heir to an ephedra empire. Ephedra is the stuff that you get in Actifed, in Sudafed. It's an all-purpose, I suppose psychedelic speed would be the best way to describe it. Um, but when he goes back 10,000 years ago, there's a tremendous fight going on for control of the ephedra supplies. And these ephedra traffickers and these ephedra cultures are terrified of, a, of newcomers who believe that you can exist on food and water alone. And, and the, the significant person who arrives towards the end of this, this narrative, which is, is embedded in these other narratives, is, is of course Odin, who's incredibly important to you. What's his significance within the book, but also within your, within your, your larger worldview? Yeah, judgment. In the, the book is a book about judgment. It's a book about consequences and implications. And I think that is really why it gets into um, those realms of, um, of law and, uh, I suppose, right and wrong. Mm. Because this is what our democracy is about. We spent hundreds of years getting to where we are. We shouldn't casually undo the old alliance. We won't casually undo it. But at least we have to know specifically why we would do it. Because it was hard to achieve. And if it means the people in the very, very north of Scotland get sugar, then I think that's fair enough. Because in the old days, you know, the English did everything they could to keep sugar out of Scotland because they didn't want the Scots to get a taste for it. They controlled it. That is the way the overlord 
works. That's why this book had to be written to to see that this is this is a is a society in flux, and in order for us to be rich in our culture, rich in what we have, we've got to understand that we have to live in flux. That we're always becoming our society. It's never a finished thing. There's a current belief, sort of in America, that history is over. That's a very, very da dangerous thing to believe because I'm sure that's what the Romano British felt, just as the Saxons wandered into England. Yeah, we're doing all right. <laughs> we are doing all right. I've been to parts of Europe and outside and Asia Minor where people are not doing all right. So I can come back and I can report to you, hey, let's not be smug, but we're very lucky where we live. Yeah, there's, we have the potential to grow lots of food, etc., etc. If we are generous in our attitudes to people, we will continue and we will maintain a great society. Am I going off at a tangent? <laughs> no. I've Excuse me if I'm rambling. It's just, it's very important because it's, as I say, I, do, I can't write anything casually. The book wasn't painful to write, but it was utterly consuming. And it was dragged down from the heavens. It wasn't written. It was transmitted. And you know what made it brilliant? It was because I did the research. I didn't write anything that I didn't know. If people get ripped off in the book, I got ripped off. If something awful happens to a friend of somebody in the book, it's likely that it happened to a friend of mine. To a certain extent, I'm a method actor as a novelist. Most novelists would go, fucking hell, did he have to go that far to achieve that? Yeah, I'm an unfortunate like that. I needed to create a backstory not only for the bands and the artists in the book, I needed to know what was happening during the difficult second and third albums. I needed to know why the lead singer's manager was cuckolded when that single wasn't a hit. All those things are in 131, because it's not casual. It is absolutely lived. And that's all I can say. The reason I'm here is so that when you walk away, even if you think, what a pile of cack that book is, <laughs> you're always going to have a little thing at the end that goes, but he doesn't half mean it. <laughs> at least you can trust this bastard. How many people can we trust now? I mean, you have actually created... Uh what is it, a do, it's about a dozen fictional bands that they all exist and completely different genres of music. But we're about halfway through and I was just one of the things I wanted to talk about was humour, which has become an increasingly important sort of part of your armoury as a writer and as an artist. And there's one thing in the book that really amused me and continues to amuse me, which is that um, Van Morrison is dead in the book, but Jim Morrison is alive. <laughs> And ra ra Cosmic deals were made. <laughs> ra rather than explain it, I did, it's, it's up to you. you. You're welcome to say no, and I know you're probably going to say no, and no, I'm giving you the opportunity. But um, 
Do you want to read that bit? Shall I read it? There is a parallel between myself and the uh, main character in the book, in as much as he's from the North Midland mining town of Eastwood, where D.H. Lawrence comes from. Um, and he goes north and he makes it in Liverpool. But what happens is, is Jim Morrison is very much alive in, uh, in 131, doing extremely well. And, um, well, I'll read you, I'll read you. This is, this is about uh, Rock Section meeting him. Where am I starting? Okay. He finds Jim Morrison walking around the streets of Eastwood uh, looking for D.H. Lawrence. D.H. Lawrence is one of the heroes in the book. Who's well. that? D.H. Lawrence, yeah, is a, is a major character. I wouldn't say, he's a, is he a hero? I suppose well, he is, isn't he? He's an ur source yeah. of everything, isn't Yeah, that's he? the word I would have used, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> anyway, eventually, Jim. Rock 17. He's never really been out of Eastwood apart from to party in Nottingham about seven miles away. And Jim's come to Eastwood and finally... They've got a bunch of pale ale off his auntie. <laughs> and uh, they're drinking at a very, very ugly pub called The Man in Space. The Jimbo that drunk me under the table in Eastwood that night had just returned from Limerick in the west of Ireland and was nearly suicidal. He said he'd gone in search of the Celt inside him but had discovered only the Viking. And that all his own songs of the sea, his chants his shanties, had in that dire hotel room in the Limerick Strand risen up as one great cannon to beseech him to leave, to run, to quit the city and its environs. Mercy me, I thought. Jim described a chronic and vicious, illness-inducing weather depression that filtered permanently east up the mouth of the River Shannon into Limerick city centre, where the sickness malingered unable to dissipate due to a massive membrane of cloud created by the surrounding mountains. Jim told me there'd been such a slough of despond hanging trapped over Limerick that he'd had to flee from that place and its heinous past. Moreover, on the final night, on his final night in the Limerick, in the Limerick Strand, the civic ghosts of the city's 17th century leaders, Clan Rickard, Hugh Du O'Neill, and Mayor Piers Crewe Fitzpiers had all visited Jim's hotel room as one spectral deputation, offering their apologia as to why negotiations with the English parliamentarians had been so devastatingly mishandled. Jim then described how, during a bedside vigil by a spectral being that called itself aphorismical discovery, he had unwittingly infuriated the spectre by refusing its generous proposal that Jim compose a new Irish river elegy with these first lines. Shannon, the Irish bulwark, unloyal spouse of the nation, is now become a prostitute, free passage to all comers. <laughs> I was 17, what do you say? It was the making of me. Later that same night, Jim nearly got me kicked out of the man in space for singing an IRA hymn to the tune of Deutschland, Deutschland, Dubralis in a Nico accent. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for that. But then Auntie Florrie had relented, had relented when she learned that Jim was the light my fire guy. When the Van Morrison story inevitably came up, I really wanted Jim to tell it purely from his own point of view. A couple of the Man in Space regulars had been big fans of Van, and knowing nothing of the circumstances, had been quite outspoken about Jim's reported role in Van's strange demise. <laughs> Jim was quite matter-of-fact, but it clearly bothered him a lot. The way he told it, his white witch English girlfriend, Patricia Keneally, had been throwing anagrams all evening. When it was revealed to her that Jim's own sacred anagram was Mr. Mojo Ryzen. Far out, thinks Jim, and looks around at each of us for encouragement and agreement. We all nod, fair enough. Great stuff. Anyway, explained Jim, having now learned the sacred nature of the anagram, he and Patricia next embarked on a through-the-night anagram spree, one that terminated only on Jim's discovery that his great hero, Van Morrison's sacred anagram, was Mr. Avo Snoring. <laughs> Guffaws all round the pub for that one, especially from the few clueless, from the few clueless pre-pop music old-timers for whom all the names mentioned would have meant sod all anyway. The next time Jim was back on the West Coast, he informed Van the Man that the two of them were reincarnations of ancient Irish drinking poets. <laughs> and that Jim henceforth wished to be known only by his sacred anagram. Call me Mr. Mojo Rising. Van, however, unconvinced by Jim's sacred anagram alone, and himself already an Irish drinking poet of considerable authenticity, was nevertheless tremendously impressed by his own sacred anagram, Mr. Avo snoring. <laughs> if only because of its then current poetic ring. Everybody knew that Van's former producer, Burt Burns, was at that time making it almost impossible for him to work in America. But Van's stubborn, tough facade was such that no one could really estimate his real pain. To Jim, he admitted that his, his health had been iffy for a while. And by the end of their exchange, Jim told our hushed congregation, he feared greatly that this sacred information had grievously overwhelmed his hero. By now taking Jim's comments very seriously, Van Morrison next assembled that legendary loose bands, band of musicians that laid down his brilliant LP, Astral Weeks. Thereafter, Van the Man, convinced by circumstances that his own Mr. Avo snoring denoted a true cosmic invitation to the big sleep, had embarked on the now infamous, psychic, and artistic dwindler that <laughs> resulted in his tragic early death just 18 months later. At the end of Jim's story, the silence in the man in space was so loud, you could have released it as an early tangerine dream LP. <laughs> It kind of prompts that most banal of um, questions, where do you get your ideas from? I want to leave plenty of um, time for people in the audience to ask some questions, but I do want to talk a little bit about humour because you, do, you think it's important to make people laugh, don't you? Every life is a tragedy because it all ends in death. 
you can live at all these different levels. And I'm on your way to that death, to that certainty. And I just find that these islands have fantastic sense of humor. I'm not saying that there are other places that don't have such a great sense of humor. It's just that there is so much nuance in these islands. We're a confident bunch of people. And that's really important to recognize. Confident people laugh at themselves because they know that it's really no skin off their nose for people to be guffawing. I get an enormous kick walking down the street with my opaque shades and I see a couple of young ladies and young gentlemen and they're looking and smirking at me thinking that guy doesn't know how weird he looks. <laughs> But that's the thing. It's a lifestyle choice for me. <laughs> because that's the point. I'm living in this. And by living in it, I've been allowed to get round, uh, well, I suppose, what is it? The word privilege is a weird one, isn't it? You know, the, um, we say Lord, my Lord. My Lord translates into French as mon liege. Literally, my law. So Lord, L-O-R-D, I would spell it L-A-W-E-D. That one with the law. I'm part of privilege. Privy, liege, before the law. Mm. It's like getting on the guest list at every situation. I get paid to look like a complete daft apeth, as my grandmother would have said. <laughs> and so I think it's essential to come in from that point of view. And the other thing is, is I'm very anti the Christian method. You know, you, the Christian method is you stand on the street corner in the shopping precinct on a Saturday and you just go, blah, 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 blah. Well, who are you going to pick up? You're only going to pick up complete lost maniacs. I'm trying to drive those people as far away from me as possible. <laughs> what I know about all you people here is you, you actually had to actively come here. <laughs> so you know that... Yeah, however much I look like a cartoon, there's, there's some depth behind it. And that's the whole point, is my role is to be shamanically moved and motivated at all points, to go into the mountain and to bring back the story and to tell you all. And so long as I keep doing that, You'll allow me to do, you'll allow me to keep going by buying my wares. But those wares have to be sacred. And humor is at the, the absolute heart of that sacred flame that burns inside us. We got a good sense of humor. Two final things. We've got 15 minutes left. And I'd love you to end with a, with a final. I'm just going to stand for a minute. Do you want me to go over there? Oh. Okay, you're kneeling here. Okay, kneeling. fine, yeah. Um, the, the book isn't really... This happens, so he's cool about I'm it. I'm very used to this, yeah. The book isn't really for fans of C.S. Lewis, is it? Are there any fans of the Narnia books in here? Oh. See you outside, mate. Bring <laughs> the book isn't really... to me. <laughs> it isn't really for fans of C.S. Lewis, is it? No. No. Yeah. And finally, is that all you've got to say on that? Or should we expand it? 
Yeah, I'll expand. Okay, expand. One three one is very. Um, I suppose. C.S. Lewis does a good job on behalf of St. Paul. Therefore, I would have executed him had I had the opportunity. <laughs> um, but I'm not trying to turn you off the Narnia stuff. Um, I'm just very, very uh, fearful of uh, women hating... Um, you know what, I won't go any further because I've been so positive tonight. Yeah. I have, haven't I? I and I think this is what the, if my whole message is about adopting a generous attitude, then I won't be a git about C.S. Lewis. Because he is, he's got a kind of a self-git device. You only have to read for a couple of, read C.S. Lewis, read Mere Christianity, uh, attempt to read Mere Christianity. There. That's the argument that you need. You just need to read it. So before I throw it open, can it, just the final, the, the most obvious question perhaps, can we expect more fiction from you? Yeah, I think so. That was a yes. I think I have to write more fiction because it was quite, I was quite fearful when I finished the book because I wanted it so much to be, I wanted to be able to write fiction. I had no idea. Now I've had this response, which is very positive. I know that there are other stories of extremely dubious nature. Um, and I've got, to get, I've got to get rid of them because they're cluttering up a great deal of my mind and really you know, making sleep difficult at times. Could you give us one example? Christ Burroway. Okay. The story of Christ Burroway. You could probably, you know what, Christ Burroway. If any of you remember that, just, you could probably Google Christ Burroway, wouldn't you think? Yeah, wouldn't, yeah. Rum stories are me. <laughs> do, we, do we have um, a gentleman with a microphone to uh, pick some questions? Oh, hello. Just behind you. Hi, Julian. Hi. On the subject of humour, I'd like to thank you for um, knee my wounded heart at Bury. Um, in 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 the sort of pantheon of stars that have I've followed through my life, you're one of the brightest, and the. Subject of football was not one that I associated with you or the sort of the things I've read about you over the years. Can you expand on that and also how Hillsborough affected you? When I, the subtitle of this book is a time-shifting, Gnostic, hooligan road novel. It's, it's really a hooligan novel in as much as the it was inspired by hooligans that I knew who, who, who lived their life very thoroughly and, um, and uh, with great vigor they prosecuted their mission with great vigor 
So when I say that this is a Gnostic novel, even the football hooliganism and, and the, the actions of the football hooligans is uh, exceedingly accurate. Um, I'm not sure really how I feel about the, the football content. Um, all, the, um, all the small, all, all the, the clubs exist. Um, they're not quite as violent as I've um, made them out to be. Um, in terms of Hillsborough, Hillsborough's a peculiar thing because you know what? Hillsborough's one of those things where sometimes you can be in a conversation with a bunch of men and everybody's trying to out, be outmoved. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, oh, no, I'm, I'm absolutely moved by, by Hillsborough. It's like, well, no, Sherlock, of course you're moved by the death of loads of people. But it is one of those strange things because everybody knows that there was something shifty. There was a it was an evil that created it. So it is something that is... But it also felt to me like the culmination of something, something that had been going on for six years or more. It was a bit like the end of the 60s for us, you know what I mean? A bit like our Altamont, in a way. Is there another question? Gentleman here? Uh, hi, Julian. Nice to hi. see you. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the editorial process and what's it like to edit a shaman? I well, mean, could you is that we, we need to ask, ask, ask Julian's he, he daughter. Says, he says, what's it like to edit a shaman and what's the editorial process of that? For this book, which is the first time I ever had a completely different agenda because the whole point of writing it, I didn't, I didn't want to be what Gurdjieff was saying, you know, I didn't want the book to satisfy my neurosis and everybody else was like, well, what the hell's he on about? I wanted it to be something that was vital to everybody in this room. If it wasn't a vital story of world importance, then I'm a fucker for writing it. I mean, I mean this, you know, there's, there's nothing, I don't mean anything less than that. Um, but what I did was, My daughter has been, my youngest daughter has been obsessed with, the, with this story since 10? Is it, is it that long ago that I started talking? Well, 12. 131 started when, I was when she was 12. <laughs> I've been telling this story and expanding on it and expanding on it to the point where nobody but Avalon would have a clue, really. Maybe Dorian would have. Um, uh, um, similar insights, but nothing like the absolute knowledge of all this. So we came to a kind of a deal where it was a bit like, say, I was Mrs. Gaskell and she was Dickens as the editor. So it had to be written a chapter at a time and then it had to be read. It had to be read so that it was satisfying more than just me. And by doing it that way, I was forced to do it at quite a pace because I wanted to do it at a, at a great pace as though it was um, kind of a, a installments in a monthly magazine. So that's how we did it. We were very pragmatic. Did the, did the publisher copy edit at all? Yes. Okay. Is that, was that um, a very... Lee edited it, yeah. um, sat down with me and... Um, it wasn't very edited, was it? Sorry about that. 
<laughs> he liked it. But then again, I wrote it very tightly like that. You know, yeah, it, needed very, it needed very little editing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's not go down that avenue right now. Um, another question, please? The gentleman here. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Um, the, the Herzog character has a great hatred for the band Half Man, Half Biscuit. <laughs> An inevitable um, question. I was, yeah, I, I was wondering if you shared that particular opinion. No, because I've got their albums. Um, it's Ju just Julian Mike. Sorry. Yes, I've got their albums. But I think it's so... E the, the perfect targets because there is, is such a contrary position and so I figured that it would be you know Herzog would have a problem with them yeah yeah the I the I hate Nera's Hughes affair was shameful <laughs> we got time for two more questions and then Julian unless Julian do you, do you want to just continue with the questions and not do the reading should I should I because there's the Mick Goodby poem. You do you want to do the, do, do we need the Mick Goodby poem? I think it's a good way to end myself. Two more questions and then Mick Goodby poem and then signing. Gentleman here. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, and we'll go over here. I'm, I'm, we're neglecting the peripheries, sorry. Hello. Um, for want of a better description, the Bread and Water Society, um, do you think that is it is possible to create a bread and water society and still have fun? <coughs> and if not, then uh, how important do you think it is for people having fun to be on the same drugs? Well, you're saying that if we have a society of drug taking, should it be monitored? Julian, give him the mic. I just feel that a lot. I'm not anti-drugs per se. I've taken a few in my time, but I just, I just think that a lot of problems arise when, when people are socialising and they're on different drugs. <laughs> You'd have to have people like me as the police, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. That's a great question, thank you. Can we have the yeah, next one? Yes, that's... <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Yeah. But yeah. that, do you know what? Yeah, that's really an important point. Oh, no. <laughs> one of the problems, one of the problems I think is, is that Western artists take it upon themselves to say, it would be like me saying, no, I've taken a lot of acid and it didn't, didn't do me any harm. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
and I'm not an advocate of psychedelics for society. I'm very much not an advocate. But I am an advocate of psychedelics for the people in this room. Because <laughs> there's enough evidence of an open mind that they wouldn't, it wouldn't be catastrophic to their well-being. <laughs> but that's the important thing, I think. Is, you know, Johnny Thunders, smack's really good. Everybody should be on smack. So like, I don't think so, John. Okay. Um, I was wondering how, how large the spectre of not writing looms over you. How large the spectre of not writing looms over you. I think it probably looms over a lot of writers, but it doesn't loom over me because I've written lots. And do you know what? <laughs> I've written more than I ever wanted to. Okay. I used to say... <laughs> 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 Thank you. I don't, he didn't, I don't think he meant that aggressively. <laughs> I'm still using the mic. <laughs> I, are we, sh do, should we do this reading? It's very short. It's about three minutes. I wanna, I wanna okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. This reading is... The other main character in the book, it, because this takes place during the rave period, of course, is an opportunist social worker called Mick Goodbe, uh, an ex-army brat, well, an ex-Air Force brat, um, who um, is, a, is a, Jungian, um, uh, a Jungian psychologist and um, he's getting on. And the great thing about the rave period was the people who were getting on, it, it, it was their opportunity to get back on it again. <laughs> Steve Hillage, come forward. <laughs> so this poet, Mick Goodby, he's not really a poet at all, he's a chancer. He just happens to be um, RAF. He, when, he's, when, he's, when he's growing up, he becomes addicted to the fizz. Uh, the cold fizz that the RAF feed him. Um, this stuff called uh, cola bear. Uh, and this cola bear has got awful Ministry of Defense sugar substitute in it. So he becomes obsessed with why am I, you know, doesn't drink alcohol, just drinks these sugary drinks. And uh, eventually, when he goes off on one of their hooligan outings, he discovers to his disgust in Paris, that this third division team in Paris has not got enough, uh, enough fizzy drinks. He f ends up on the, um, uh, outside the Eiffel Tower, nicks a tourist's half-empty uh, can, can, uh, can of tango, drinks it, the gendarmerie take him away. He writes his poem and as an explanation, and it becomes a hit by mistake. Because, of course, he's got the catchy title, The Last Tango in Paris. <laughs> so what happens is... What happens is, is to start with, right? He's just there at kind of like pubs outside Anfield doing Last Tango in Paris. And he's got a terrible accent because he's, an, he's a, a, an Air Force brat. So, you know, I, I describe his accent as being pan-pennine. <laughs> yeah, oh, it'll just pick up anything. But then the kind of the, the, the Martin Hannett of, of, of 131 picks up. He's in the audience 
seeing Mick Goodby perform this, and he thinks, there's a hit in here. <laughs> so eventually, he talks to Mick, to Mick Goodby, and he says, he says write us, a, um, write us a, a, a verse to put for kiddies to sing. We'll get a nice kiddie verse in about fizzy drinks. The whole thing's going to be a massive rave hit. Mick concurs, and they go for it. Now, when I, I'm about to perform it, but <laughs> when it gets to the end, Mick is helped by his friends, who are strategically, just as Bono would do, strategically placed <laughs> randomly <laughs> to say things as if they were just, you know, naturally interfacing with it. The last tango in Paris, in mixed voice. Sugary drinks across the ages, tales of pick-me-ups by Satan. <laughs> Hello? It's divine intervention. It's the fireworks committee. Has that put you off? Would have been better for chapter one. <laughs> Across the ages, tales of pick-me-ups by sages, caffeinated to the max, delivering drinks down ancient tracks. The king of Vienna needs some sugar. You're heading east, you lucky bugger. Red Bull comes in cans. I know, I've followed its career since I chanced upon its Austrian debut. It was 1987, and our youth team played East Tyrol, where the fighting hordes are few. So we loaded up with Cola Max. We loaded up with sickly snacks. Got overloaded on the aeroplane. Then descended as one sugary mass. We crossed the tarmac, reached the grass, then retched collectively. Oh! <laughs> Let's start again. Sugary drinks across the ages, tales of pick-me-ups by sages, caffeinated to the max, delivering drinks down ancient tracks. The king of France, he needs some sugar. You're heading east, you lucky bugger. Red Star Paris, green and white, a year or so ago, your soft drinks had all gone long before half-time. So I had to mug a tourist fairly near the Eiffel Tower Half a tango is no crime. Your Honour, it was lack of fizz. Your Honour, coat won't do the biz. And your baggage handlers, well, they cracked the fizz I'd packed. If you run a Euro football club, we Anglos don't all need the pub. Why sugar? It's a fact. School choir comes in. This is the school choir voice. <laughs> Mick collects the kind of drinks that keep you up all night. <laughs> All you kiddies, too much pop will make you sick. Unto every son and daughter, give them juice and give them water, then there's all the more for Mick. Bono's allies come out of the shadows. <laughs> was it the first Vimto in Cannock? No, it was the last tango in Paris. Was it the final Britvic in Bury? No, it was the last tango in Paris. It was not the penultimate coke in Berlin, quaffed down with a bong load of charis. Indeed, it would go down in history as the last tango in Paris. 
Was it the final our whites in Westminster? No, it was the last tango in Paris. It was not the penultimate Tizer in Hull, it was the last tango in Paris. Was it the ultimate Fanta in Nazi Germany? The last Dr. Pepper on Broadway? Was it the last Kiora to escape from Andorra? Just take this Ribena and go away. Was it the last Dandelion and Bardock in the Quantox? No, I won't speak of it longer. The only contender was my mum's cola. That's only because it was stronger. Was it the second to last Iron Blue in the Shetlands? Or the final Corona on Sky? Well, me, I can't answer. Or clammy and squetty. Just give me one quicker, or I'll die. Well done, man. You can get up now. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Lee Braxton. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Can you, can you still hear me? Can you still hear me? Yeah, okay. Julian will be signing um, in 10 minutes in the signing tent. Just give him 10 minutes and then we'll see you there if you want your book signed. Thank you for coming. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.